0: Go to Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 36, we're going to look at verses 22 through 38. Ezekiel 36, starting in verse 22. It says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleanness and I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant, that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It's not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord God. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel." Thus says the Lord God, On the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited, and the waste places shall be rebuilt, and the land that was desolate shall be tilled, instead of being the desolation that it was in the sight of all who pass by. And they will say, This land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden, and the waste and the desolate ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left all around you shall know that I am the Lord. I have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that which was desolate. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. Thus says the Lord God, this this also I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them, to increase their people like a flock, like the flock for sacrifices, like the flock at Jerusalem during her appointed feast. So shall the waste cities be filled with flocks of people, Then they will know that I am the Lord. Now, as we get into our study tonight, I got to be honest and just tell you, this is one of my most favorite passages in the book of Ezekiel. We're about to get into a real fun time as we get next time. We're going to get together in a couple weeks. We're going to be in chapter 37 in the whole Valley of Dry Bones and then get into chapter 38 and 39 in the Battle of Gog and Magog. We're going to have some fun as we really get into that. But this section here, the second half of chapter 36, is actually one of my absolute favorites. And as I've been preaching for over 30 years, I have many times referred back to this section of Scripture for reasons you'll see tonight that are kind of cool. Now here, once again, God tells the nation of Israel that he will in the end forgive their sin and bring them back into their own land. Now, I say the word again because God had just through Ezekiel in the earlier part of this chapter, he had told them of his land promises that we studied our last time together. And another reason why I say again is, is a lot of people may not have grasped this, Jeremiah had just recently prophesied the exact same thing that we just read here. What I just read to you in chapter 36, verses 22 and following, I want to show you that Jeremiah had just, in a few months prior to that, prophesied the exact same thing. You see, Jeremiah and Ezekiel both prophesied around the same time. Jeremiah began his ministry of prophecy prior to Ezekiel's, he was prophesying in Jerusalem, in Judah, to the nation of Israel that was there during all this stuff that was going on as they were going to be taken captive. As you know, there were, as we've studied, there were three waves at 605 and 597 and 586. And so all these different attacks that God used Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar to come after Israel. Ezekiel was in that second wave in 597 that was taken captive, and 10,000 people were taken out of Jerusalem and taken captive to Babylon. And while he was in Babylon, if you remember, is when God called him to be a prophet, and he began to prophesy to the nation of Israel that was in captivity in Babylon, and that's who his ministry was to. Jeremiah was speaking to the people in Jerusalem. Now, at the same time, Jeremiah had to go through all the siege that happened for those three years, and he survived it, and he was actually allowed to stay there after Babylon had destroyed Jerusalem. And as we read the last couple times we were together, how they went down to Egypt when they weren't supposed to after that, and Jeremiah was taken with them. Jeremiah's ministry was to preach to the Jews that were in Jerusalem, in Judah, in that area. Ezekiel's was to prophesy to the Jews who were in captivity in Babylon. But they both prophesied around the same time. And as you've seen throughout our whole study, you can't study Ezekiel without looking at Jeremiah because their ministries were very, very similar And to the same people, or at the same time. So go with me to Jeremiah 31, and let's take a look at some things that God had Jeremiah say around the same time. In Jeremiah 31, look at verses 1 through 4. It says, At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness, When Israel sought for rest, the Lord appeared to him from afar away. I have loved you, God says, with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. And again, I will build you and you shall be built, O virgin Israel. We're going to stop there and jump over to verse 8. Behold, I will bring them, God says, from the north country and gather them from the farthest parts of the earth. Among them, the blind and the lame, the pregnant woman and she who soon labored together. A great company, they shall return here With weeping they shall come, and with pleas for mercy I will lead them back. And I will make them walk by brooks of water in a straight path in which they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the coastlands far away. Say, He who scattered Israel will gather him, and will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob, and has redeemed him from hands too strong for him. Jump over to verse 16. Thus says the Lord, "'Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, "'for there is a reward for your work,' declares the Lord, "'and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. "'There is hope for your future,' declares the Lord, "'and your children shall come back to their own country.'" I have heard Ephraim grieving. This is what Ephraim said. You have disciplined me, and I was disciplined like an untrained calf. Bring me back that I may be restored, for you are the Lord my God. For after I had turned away, I relented. And after I was instructed, I struck my thigh. I was ashamed, and I was confounded, because I bore the disgrace of my youth." Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, God says, I do remember him still. Therefore my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. Now jump down to verse 31, and you're going to see a very similar passage to what we just read in Ezekiel. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Now, I don't know how many of you caught it, but there's a lot of similarities between what we just saw there in Jeremiah and what we looked at in Ezekiel. Now, but what I want to do is I want to show you, though, that these promises to gather Israel and bring them back into their land haven't been fulfilled yet. Even though the nation of Israel has been a nation since 1948, even though we've seen the miraculous rebirth of the nation of Israel, and the fact they've been back in their land almost 70 years now, there's a lot of prophecy teachers that say the regathering of Israel happened in 1948. And I want you to see tonight, as we take some time to look at Ezekiel and Jeremiah, the passages we've just looked at, and we look at them in specific detail, I want you to see some things tonight that show us clearly. That even though it is awesome that the nation of Israel is back in their land, the fulfillment of this prophecy has not happened yet. As you know from our previous study, they're going to be chased out of Israel by the Antichrist. They're going to, a small portion of them is going to survive that. Two-thirds are going to be killed. And at the end of the tribulation period is when the nation of Israel is going to come back into their land, and God will sc- gather them from all the nations they've been scattered, and they're going to come back to their land, and then these promises will be fulfilled as you will see in just a little bit. So let's look closely uh, at, at why. The first thing I want you to see, go back to Ezekiel 36 and look at verses 31 and 32. The first thing I want you to see is this. On the day that these promises are fulfilled, Israel will be repentant and in mourning for their sins as a nation. Ezekiel 36, look at verses 31 and 32. God says, Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord. Let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Now, I'm going ask you a question. Is Israel back in the land in a repentant attitude before God? Not at all. Actually, they're proud of their heritage, Zionism. They think that they're back because of them, because they're the people of Israel, they're God's chosen, and they're actually back in pride, not in repentance. But here the scripture says clearly that when these promises are fulfilled, the nation of Israel will come back into the land in repentance. And God says that clearly. He says, I'm not doing this for your sake. Let that be known to you. I'm doing it for the sake of my holy name. Jump back to uh, Jeremiah 31. Let me show you how Jeremiah puts it. In Jeremiah 31, look at verse 9. Jeremiah 30 verse, 31, verse 9. With weeping they shall come, and with pleas for mercy I will lead them back. You see it? Jump over to uh, verses 18 and 19. I have heard Ephraim grieving. You've disciplined me, and I was disciplined like an untrained calf. Bring me back that I may be restored. For you are the Lord my God. For after I had turned away, I relented. And after I was instructed, I struck my thigh. I was ashamed, and I was confounded. There we see that word again. Because I bore the disgrace of my youth. When the nation of Israel actually is brought back into the land to fulfill this promise, and these promises, the nation of Israel that Is left will be repentant. They'll be begging God for mercy. They'll realize that it was because of their sin that all this stuff had happened to them. But I want to take you over to Zechariah because Zechariah talks about this as well, but he adds one little aspect, which is very important to their repentance. Go to Zechariah chapter 12 and look at verse 10, 10 through 14. Zechariah chapter 12, verses 10 through 14. God says here, And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for hatted ribbon in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn, each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives by themselves, and the family of the house of Levi by by itself and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shimeites and by itself and their wives by themselves, and all the families that are left, each by itself and their wives by themselves. Look closely. The prophecy said that when this happens, God's going to pour out a spirit of grace and mercy on them. And they're going to weep. But why are they going to weep? Because of their transgressions, but because of what? Who they pierced. Look closely. And they'll have praise for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they'll mourn for Him. Folks, don't miss this. The prophecy said that when this happens, the Jews are going to believe in Jesus. The nation of Israel that's left at the end of this time, at the end of the tribulation period, is literally going to say, Jesus is the Messiah. Are they saying that as a nation right now? No. So as awesome as it is that in 1948... Uh, they became a nation again, and that sets the stage for all the prophecies at the end times to be fulfilled because there has to be people in the land for the Antichrist to come in and all these nations to attack them in the land. They had to be back in the land according to the prophecies, which is awesome, but the fulfillment of these prophecies of what's going to happen in the very end hasn't happened yet because Israel is not repentant. They haven't looked on him whom they've pierced, and as you saw, when this happens, every single Jew is going to believe. It's Not the case. You said something, dude. Uh, it won't be till after the rapture and end of the tribulation period, actually, because they're going to make a covenant with the Antichrist. You know, and for three and a half years, they're going to think they're OK. But at the midpoint of the, the, the tribulation period, the Antichrist is going to reveal himself for who he is and he's going to go after the Jews. And like we said, that's why we read in Jeremiah 31 verses one through four, they sought they, they received grace in the wilderness Remember, Revelation tells us they're going to run out into the wilderness and be protected by God for three and a half years. And that's when they're going to realize Jesus is the Messiah. All these prophecies are true. It was our fault. And humbly, they're going to turn to him for mercy. And he's going to lead them back and they're going to weep. They're going to be repenting. Now, I need to talk to us for a second. I need to point out that repentance and humility are the gateways that open up God's grace in our lives. Here we could easily talk about how at that moment the Jews are going to be repentant and they're going to seek God's mercy and he's going to pour out his grace upon them and give them grace and give them mercy and all that. But I don't want you to miss the fact that we still need his grace on a daily basis. We still need his mercy on a daily basis. Yes, those of us who have trusted Christ as our Savior are forgiven of all our sins. and We're going to get into that tonight. And That's such a cool thing that we're going to see from this passage Yet at the same time, the Bible is very clear, though, that we can hinder our relationship with the Lord by walking in disobedience to Him. We don't lose our relationship. We're guaranteed that we're going to heaven when we die because of the Spirit within us. Yet at the same time, we need to live a life that's continually repentant, humble, seeking God's grace and His mercy on a daily basis because that opens the flow for us to receive His grace. Let me show you from Scripture what I mean. Go to James chapter 4. And as you're turning there, keep in mind, the book of James was written to the church. James chapter 4, verses 4 through 10. James chapter 4, starting in verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it's to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns, God yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to who? The humble. Now, before I read any further, put a finger here in James chapter 4 and jump over to Isaiah chapter 63. I I want you to see something that I think I brought out two weeks ago, but I want to remind you of it. Isaiah chapter 63, look at verse 10. It says, but they rebelled and grieved his Holy Spirit, talking about the nation of Israel. There he turned to be, therefore he turned to be their enemy and himself fought against them. When James chapter four says God opposes the proud, we've had this mindset that when we walk in disobedience, God just kind of gets quiet. Oh, it's more than that. The scripture shows us that he actually start working against us. There's actually prophecies where God speaks through the prophets to the nation of Israel. And he said, have you ever noticed that you go to collect 20 bushels and it's only 10? You go go to harvest so much and you think it was going to be, but actually wasn't as much as you thought. God is the one who says, I'm the one that's doing it. I'm working against you here. And I just want you to hear something. And we'll go back to James 4. When we walk in disobedience to God, we grieve his spirit, we quench his spirit. He's always wanting to flow his grace and his mercy toward us. That's who he is. He's a God of patience and mercy, and he loves us. But when we walk in disobedience, we pretty much say to God, talk to the hand. And when we walk along enough like that, God then starts to work against us in order to get our attention. In the book of Psalms, the scripture says, don't be like the horse or the mule that have to have a bit put in their mouth or else they won't listen to you. And I don't know how many of you ever know this, but Paul shared his testimony, how he met Jesus two or three times in the New Testament. We see the account of it in Acts chapter 9 where he's going to have Christians put to death and Jesus shows up there and blinds him and he falls off his horse and Jesus pretty much says, who are you? why are you persecuting me? And Paul says, who are you, Lord? And he says, I'm Lord Jesus, who are you persecuting? And Paul comes to faith. Well, later on he tells this story again and another time he tells this story again near the end of the book of Acts and in that third time, He adds something to his testimony that he hadn't shared before that we didn't see in chapter nine of Acts and the other times that he shared his testimony. But in the third time that we see the account of it, Paul says that when he met Jesus, Jesus said these words to him. It's hard to kick against the goads. King James translation says it's hard to kick against the pricks. Now, some of us might not understand what that means. Anybody ever ridden a horse? Anybody here? Anybody ever ridden a horse? All right, you put a bit in the horse's mouth to control it, but cowboys also wear something on their heels. Spurs. What's the purpose of the spur on the heel of the boot? To make them listen. It's to get them to go or to just get them to respond. The goads were something like that that they would use to control an animal when it wasn't listening. And Jesus said to Paul, when Jesus showed up and blinded him, he says, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. In other words... I'm going to win, Paul. Didn't the scripture say that he who began a good work in you will finish it? Doesn't the scripture say that Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith in Hebrews chapter 12? Doesn't the scripture say in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, that he predestined to conform us into the image of his son? Guess what, folks? Just because you're saved doesn't mean God's done with you. You need to live with a daily understanding of your sinfulness. Thank God you're forgiven, but still understand that he's in the process of conforming you into the image of his son. And if you stay humble and repentant and grieved over your sin, God's flow of his grace and his mercy is open to you. That's what opens the floodgates. But if you keep walking in disobedience, guess what? There comes a point where he has to turn the heat up a little bit. He will win. He'll get your attention. When I was a younger Christian, I used to think that one day I would get to this level of perfection where I would get closer to the Lord and I wouldn't sin anymore or temptations would fall by the wayside the more that I grew closer to Jesus. And you know what I've come to realize after being a Christian for over 40 years? I've come to realize that actually the closer I get to Jesus, the more time I spend in his word, the more time I get to spend in his presence, the more I realize my sinfulness. You want to do an interesting study? Get one of your study Bibles and look at which books Paul wrote first. By the way, I'll give you a hint. It's Galatians. And which ones he wrote last? 2 Timothy. And put them in order. Your study Bibles will tell you roughly what time period he wrote each one. Put them in order on a piece of paper of what order Paul wrote each book. And watch how Paul describes himself From the first letter he wrote to the last, let me give you a little hint. You're going to see Paul, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, to where by the end he describes himself as the chief of sinners. Those of us who are growing in our walk with the Lord will understand our sinfulness more and more and realize his great love and mercy for us, and it'll make us love him more because those who realize we've been forgiven much love much, Jesus said. And so I just want to tell you, we can sit here and look at how at that time, Israel's going to beg for his mercy and be repentant, and he's going to pour out his grace upon them. Don't miss the fact that that's available to you and I today. You want his mercy? You want his grace? Stay humble. Stay broken. Back to James chapter 4. So we look at verse six again, but God gives more grace, therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Isn't that how we got saved? Didn't we come to that point where we realized I can't save myself? I can't be right before God. The scripture says that if I broke one of his commands, it's like I broke all of them. I can't barter with him and say, I think I've been pretty good. You should be able to let me in. The scripture says that one sin makes us guilty as if we broke it all. James chapter 2, verse 10. And we come to a place where we realize, God, if you don't give me salvation, I can't have it. If you don't give me your righteousness, I can't be righteous. And we, in repentance and humility, said, Lord Jesus, give me your Righteousness, forgive my sins, I give you my life, and that's how we got saved. We need to stay in that humble attitude in the same way throughout our lives. By the way, some of you say, Well, I don't know if I need to live in a daily uh, attitude of repentance or anything because I mean, I'm not that bad. Well, I got scripture for you too. Go to first John chapter 1. First John is it near the over by Revelation. First John chapter 1, look at verses. Five and following. John, again, writing to believers, he said, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie, and we don't practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess or agree with God about our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we haven't sinned, we make him a liar and his word's not in us. Hopefully you understand that even though you're saved, you're still a sinner. You still break God's commands. Thank God he's erased your sin. But if you want to live in that daily flow of his grace and his mercy, you need to stay humble and repentant. Now, there's a second thing. Go back to Ezekiel 36 that I want to point out that shows us that these prophecies have not been fulfilled yet, even though 1948 is awesome and the nation of Israel being in the land is a great thing. Like I said, the first thing is the prophecy shows us that when Israel is going to be regathered, they're going to be regathered in repentance and they're going to believe in Jesus. That hasn't happened yet. There's a second thing. On the day that these prophecies are fulfilled... God is going to cleanse the remnant of Israel of all their sins and declare them righteous and remember their sins no more. And at that time, every Jew will know the Lord. Go to Ezekiel 36. Look at verse 33. Thus says the Lord God, On the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, then he goes on and talks about how the grain is going to increase. Jump over to chapter 36, verse 25. Back up, I guess, is a good way to look at it. Chapter 36, verse 25. God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. Go over to Jeremiah 31. Look at verse 34. In Jeremiah 31, verse 34, look at what God says. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. When this happens, what's left of Israel, every single Jew is going to believe, and God's going to forgive all of their sin, and they're all going to know the Lord. Is that the case now? Obviously not. This has not yet happened. But there's something more. We're going to get to Romans 11 tonight. Yep, that's it. Exactly. Talks about that. We're going to get to that. I also want you to see there's, there's more. There's a third thing in this passage that I can't wait to show you because it applies to us today, and I'll show you what I mean by that. Not only will God forgive the nation of Israel's sin, but he will put his spirit within them and move them to obey his commands. Don't miss that. God is going to put his spirit within them at that time, and he's going to move them, cause them to obey his commands. Look at Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27. God says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I'll give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Go back to Jeremiah 31. And look at verses 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with who? Look closely. Don't just give the quick answer. Who's going to make the new covenant with at that time? House of Israel and and the house of Judah. That is awesome. I'm so glad God clarified that for us. Because there's a lot of people that say, well, the church is the new Israel. No, 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 no. We've been grafted in, as you're going to see. We've been made a part of what God promised Israel. But Israel has not been replaced by the church, and he clarifies that by saying, I'm going to make this new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Remember, they had become two kingdoms, northern kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom of Judah. He says, on that day, I'm going to make a new covenant with the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Oh. And it's not like the covenant that I made with them, with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. And then he goes on and says, everybody's going to know me and I'm going to cleanse their sin. There's three promises here that God says that He's going to do for the nation of Israel, and I want you to know them because they're very, very important. The first thing is, He said He's going to erase all their sin and cleanse them from all their iniquity. He then says He's going to, second thing, put His Spirit within them. And the third thing He says is He's going to cause them to obey Him. He's going to make them obey Him. Now, as I'm going to take some time tonight to show you from Scripture and from the New Testament... The Bible says that the promises that have been made for Israel are ours now in the church through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yes, God's going to do this for the nation of Israel at the end of the tribulation period for those that are left. But he is right now during the church age, put Israel on hold, and he's saving Gentiles right now in order to make Israel jealous. But during this time period, as I'm going to show you from Scripture... The promises made to Israel are ours now, which means that right now, if I were to ask you, has God erased your sin? Far as the east is from the west, I hope you understand. Has he put his spirit within you? And here's the third part that most Christians don't understand. Is he making you obey his commandments? See, most of us would say, well, I don't know about that one, Jim. Well, part of the reason is because we don't fully understand all that has been made available to us through Jesus living in us. And that's why I'm going to quote it to you. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 14 and following, Paul says, after hearing about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for each other, here's my prayer for you. I heard that you've been saved and it's been manifested by how much you love each other. Here's my prayer. I pray that the eyes of your heart would be opened, that you would understand the hope to which he's called you, your glorious inheritance in the saints, And his mighty power that's available to us who believe. That's the same power that he used to raise Jesus from the dead. In other words, Paul said, Christians, I understand that you're going to jump on to the first two parts of the promise. But you're going to miss out on the third part. And I pray God opens your eyes to the third part. If you ask most Christians today, has God promised that He's going to take Israel and erase their sin and put His Spirit within them and cause them to obey His commands? You would say, yes, it says so there very clearly. And I'm going to show you from Scripture, the Bible says that those are all ours right now. All three. You say, Jim, how? I'll show you. Go with me real quick to Ephesians chapter 3. In Ephesians chapter 3, look at verses 1 through 12. Paul says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. By the way, that word mystery of be like the word secret, something not yet been revealed, but now being revealed. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I've written briefly. And when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The mystery, this mystery, this secret that's now being revealed that wasn't revealed in the Old Testament, is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Fellow heirs with who? The Jews, and I want you to jump with me over to chapter 2 and you're going to see this, chapter 2, look at verses 11 and following. It says, therefore, at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time, you Gentiles were separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ." And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace, peace to those who were near. For through him we both, Jew and Gentile, have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God... Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in him, or in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by His Spirit. Do you remember when Revelation, when we did our study, how the New Jerusalem comes down at the in the eternal state, and you get the twelve gates and the twelve foundations? And the twelve gates and the twelve foundations are the twelve apostles and the 12 tribes of Israel, how Jew and Gentile, in the church, Jew and Gentile can be saved. Very few Jews are being saved right now, but there are Jews that are individually coming to faith. But as a whole, the nation of Israel, as you're going to see in a little bit, is hardened. They don't understand the gospel. But Jew and Gentile are being brought together through the church age. It's something God's doing. And he said, hey, let me tell you a mystery that wasn't revealed in previous generations, but now is being revealed. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs with the Jews partakers of all the promises in Christ Jesus. You see, it's not a mystery that Gentiles would be saved. If you study your Old Testament, you'll see many places that the Gentiles would believe. Actually, when Simeon went into the temple and he met Jesus, remember when he was eight days old and he was being there brought to be offered to the Lord and everything, Simeon walks in and in his prophecy, what does Simeon say? He says he'll be a light to the Gentiles. The fact that Gentiles would be saved wasn't the mystery. The mystery that's been revealed is that the Jews and the Gentiles now are equal in the eyes of God. And the Gentiles are partakers of the promises now through Jesus Christ. Therefore, if he's made a promise to Israel that he's going to erase their sin, put his spirit within them, and cause them to move and follow his decrees, guess what? All three are yours now. Let me show you some more. Go to Ephesians. Sorry, Colossians. You're in Ephesians. Turn over to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, look at verses 25 through 29. Now again, Paul is the master of the run-on sentence. So we're going to jump just in the middle of the sentence here. He says, Of which I became a minister, verse 25, Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery, there's that word again, hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints... To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is what? Christ in you. The hope of glory. The fact that the Spirit of God would indwell them wasn't revealed until later on. If you remember, Jesus himself talking to the ones that are left. Says to him, the Spirit of God's with you, but he's going to be in you. And that mystery now has been been revealed in the church age that not in the old testament the Spirit of God would come upon somebody, but then he would leave. If they walked in disobedience, the Spirit would leave. That's why David, when he sinned with Bathsheba, wrote, Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Because in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit didn't come and dwell. He'd come upon them in power, but if God was displeased, he would remove his spirit. But now, in the church age, for those of us who believe, he erases our sin, puts his spirit within us never to leave. Never to forsake us. We're sealed by his spirit. That's why the Bible says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit by which you were sealed for the day of redemption. Oh, like I said, you guys say, Jim, you're wasting your time. I'm good with the fact that Jesus is in me. Part I struggle with is that he'll move me to follow his decrees. Here's why. Here's why we struggle with it. And it's the preacher's fault. It's the preacher's fault. See, we've been taught over the years, if you've been growing up in the church, you've heard this. You can't save yourself. There's nothing you can do to be saved. You have to let Jesus do it for you, right? And when you trust him as your savior, he's going to give you his spirit, sealing you and marking you as his. Isn't that what we've heard? But how many of us ever heard the third part of the promise? He's now going to move you to obey his commands. He's going to do it. No, that's not what we heard. We've heard now that he's done this for you, you owe it to him to live for Jesus. You need to live for Jesus. You ever heard that? And we tried to be good Christians and tried to live out the Christian life, trying to be pleasing to God. By the way, how'd that work out? Oh, but there are some promises here in the New Testament that we've missed. I want you to see them. Go to 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, look at verses 16 and 17. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 16. God, God through Paul says, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, may he comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. You see it? Who's doing the work? God is. He doesn't say you need to now do good works. He said, may God establish you in every good work and word. Look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Look at verses 4 and 5. And we have confidence in the Lord about you, Paul says, that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Is it? May God direct your hearts. To the Bible doesn't say you need to love God more. The Bible says that you need to ask God to have him love you, have you love him more. May he direct your hearts to the love of God and the perseverance of Christ. Here's what I want you to understand. In Colossians chapter two, verse six, it says it this way: In the same way in which you received Jesus as Lord, walk in him. How did you receive Jesus as Lord? By faith. You heard the message of salvation that God will give you righteousness if you believe, realize your sinfulness, realize your separation from God, understand that if you would ask God, he'll give you righteousness through faith in what Jesus did, believing that Jesus lived the sinless life, that he was put to death on the cross for your sins, that he rose from the dead by his own power, and will give righteousness to anyone who believes. If you, What happened was you heard that message, crazy as it sounds, you believed it, and you asked God to do it. That's how you got saved, right? This is how we walk in him now. The Bible promises that God will make us obey him. He'll cause us to obey him. He will actually establish us in every good work and word. He'll direct our hearts to the love of God. He'll direct us to the perseverance of Christ. How do you do it? The same way in which you received him as Lord. Lord, I heard what you have promised here. I believe it's true, crazy as it sounds. Would you do it? That's why Romans 12, 1 and 2 says that we're to daily offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. We give ourselves over to the Lord on a daily basis and say, Lord, you make these changes in me. Some of you have heard my testimony. I'm not going to take the time to go there. But I, even though successful in ministry, pastoring churches that exploded in growth, was miserable. Even though I knew I was saved. I knew I was going to heaven. I knew I'd been forgiven of my sins, but I was tired of trying to be a good Christian and failing. I was tired of hearing anybody talk about joy. I didn't even preach about joy. I didn't know what it was. So finally I came to a point where I said, Lord, if this is all there is to the Christian life, kill me. God said, you're really killing yourself trying to be a good Christian, aren't you? Yes, sir, I am. And he asked me that same question, and I ask you a lot. How's that working out for you? He said, Lord, it's not began to open my eyes to the fact that I have been trying to fulfill the third part of the promise of my own strength. Can I save myself? No. Can I put his spirit within me? No. I can't even make myself obey his commands. Oh, but I can promise you that when I stopped trying to get better as a Christian, I got better. When I started believing that he would do these things, Philippians chapter 2, verse 13 says, it's God who works in you both to will, that's the desire, and to act according to his good purpose. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 and 24, may now God himself sanctify your whole body, soul, and spirit. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Folks, the Bible is full of promises. That's why Paul said, I've heard of your faith in the Lord that's manifested in your love. Here's my prayer for you now, that you would understand the hope to which he's called you, the glorious inheritance that you have in the saints and this mighty power that's available for you who believe. And folks, I just want to challenge you. Don't believe that God's going to do that for the nation of Israel, that he's going to write his law in their hearts and he's going to cause them to obey his commands at the end of the tribulation period and miss out the fact on the fact that that's available to you today. You just have to believe it. And then daily say, Lord, do it. Do it and he will. Now, this salvation for the Gentiles time period is going to come to a close. And then God's going to fulfill these promises to Israel. Go to Romans chapter 11, the part that Duke was quoting there a a little bit ago. Go to Romans chapter 11. Let me just show you something kind of cool. Everything that we just saw in the Old Testament is now going to be kind of summarized by Paul. Look at chapter 11, verse 1. Paul says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? Talking about the nation of Israel. Look at the answer. By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. But what's God's reply to him? God says, I've kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. But if it's by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written... God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, "Let their table become a snare and a trap, and a stumbling block and a retribution for them, lest their eyes be darkened, so that they cannot see. let their eyes be darkened, so they cannot see, and bend their backs forever." So, verse eleven, Paul says, "I ask again, did they, the Jews, stumble in order that they might fall? By no means." Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, before I read any further, if you're in your notes, write this down. Deuteronomy chapter 32. The whole chapter. Deuteronomy 32 is a song of Moses. God gave Moses a song to sing to the people of Israel. Have you ever noticed that you can remember stuff if it's in song form? You know that? If you sing it, you remember you remember songs from when you were a kid? Actually, God gave the nation of Israel something he wanted them to remember in the form of a song. And so chapter 32 is the song of Moses. And as you read it, this is prior to their whole nation really beginning. And it's the whole history of what all is going to happen to them. How they're going to turn away from God. How he's going to bring judgment on them. He's going to scatter them to all the nations. And in the end, he's going to bring them back into the land. It's all there in chapter 32 of Deuteronomy. But in chapter 32, verse 21... God says to the nation of Israel, you're going to go after other gods that aren't gods to make me jealous. I'm going to take a people you don't consider a people and make you jealous. And that's us Gentiles. So did Israel, has it, is God done with Israel? By no means. But rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Boy, it's going to be an awesome day. Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch as that I'm an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Jump down, down to verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight. I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. There's that word again. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way... All Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He'll banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now, as regards the gospel, the Jews are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they're beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy." For God has consigned everyone to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. Did you catch what Paul said? He's saving us Gentiles. He's doing this church age thing to make Israel jealous. But there's going to come a time when the church age comes to a close. When the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. When the last Gentile that's going to be saved is saved. The Bible teaches he's going to take the church out. And he's going to finish what he started with the nation of Israel. Well, what's going to happen? Well, they're going to go through some real hard times. Two-thirds are going to be killed. Of that one-third that's left, half are going to stay in Jerusalem. The other half is going to run into the wilderness. But they're going to turn at the end of the tribulation period to Jesus. And he's going to scatter, gather all the ones that are scattered all over the world, and he's going to bring them back into the land. And they're going to repent. They're going to mourn for their sins. And he's going to erase all their sin. He's going to put his spirit within them, and he's going to cause them to obey his commands. And every Jew that is alive at that time, all Israel will be saved. And that's why Jesus told the nation of Israel when He's te- teaching the Jews in Matthew 24 about the end times, and he says in Matthew 24, and he who stands firm to the end will be saved. He's talking to the Jews. Folks, I want you to understand, for us today, I think this church age, put my understanding of the scriptures, is about to come to a close. I don't know who the last Gentile is, maybe that person's here tonight. If you don't know Jesus, I pray that tonight you trust him as your savior. But when that happens, all these promises are going to be fulfilled. What did God say over and over? I am the Lord. I will do it. Now, there's one other aspect as we close tonight of God's future promise that I want to bring out from our passage tonight. All right? I don't want you to miss this. That's that when these promises are fulfilled... The scripture says the surrounding nations will know that God is the Lord and that he's the one who's done all this and that he that he's done in and for Israel. Go back to Ezekiel 36. Look at verses 22 and following. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the Gentiles, or among the nations, in which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Let me ask you a question. When the nation of Israel became a nation in 1948, did all the surrounding nations say, that's because God's the Lord? Oh, No. They still reject God as being God. They think Allah is God, and they're against the Jews. The scripture says when this prophecy is fulfilled, not only will they come back in repentance, not only will all the Jews believe, but the nations that are around will all acknowledge that God is the Lord. Go to chapter 36, look at verse 36. Then the nations that are left all around you. Don't miss that, that are left. Remember our study through Ezekiel showed which nations are going to be restored, which nations will not be restored. Then the nations that are left all around you shall know that I am the Lord. I have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted which was that which was desolate. I am the Lord. I have spoken. I will do it. Jump over to chapter 38. I'll give you a little commercial for where we're going to be going in a few weeks in the Gog and Magog battle. Chapter 38, verse 23. So I will show my greatness and my holiness and make myself known in the eyes of many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord. Go to chapter 39. Look at verses 7 and 8. Chapter 39, verse 7 says this. And my holy name I will make known in the midst of my people, Israel. And I will not let my holy name be profaned anymore... And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. Behold, it is coming, and it will be brought about, declares the Lord God. That is the day of which I have spoken. Look at chapter 39, verses 21 through 29. Therefore, thus says the Lord God Now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel. I will be jealous for my holy name. They shall forget their shame and their treachery that they have practiced against me when they dwell securely in their land with none to make them afraid. Is that happening, by the way? Of course not. Not yet. When I have brought them back from the peoples and gathered them from their enemies' lands, and through them have vindicated my holiness in the sight of many nations, then they shall know that I am the Lord their God, because I sent them into exile among the nations and then assembled them into their own land. I will leave none of them remaining among the nations anymore, and I won't hide my face anymore from them when I pour out my spirit upon the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. As we close tonight, there's something I want you to see from this. God says, I'm the one that scattered them to all the nations because of their sin, because of their disobedience, because of the Jews just rejecting me and worshiping all these other idols. I scattered them to all the other nations. And they've been scattered. Even though the Jews are back in the land, there's still Jews everywhere. There are Jews in New York City, and West Palm. There are Jews all over the place. But they've been scattered because of their sin. But God says, on that day that I fulfill these promises and I gather them back, I'm going to take the punishment that I gave Israel and use it for my glory. In other words, right now, they've been an embarrassment to me. Everywhere they've gone. But when I bring them all back from everywhere they've gone and bring them all back into my land at that time, all those places that they were scattered to are going to know that I'm the Lord. You see it? In other words, God says, I'm going to take the judgment that I gave them, I'm going to take the punishment I put them through, and I'm going to flip it around and use it for my glory. What I want you to hear is this. When we humble ourselves and we say, Lord, I've messed up. Lord, I'm experiencing some hardship right now because of my sin. You've been working against me. You've you've, you've sent you sent a, a time in the wilderness that I just have not enjoyed. God says, I can take even the scars that I had you go through because of your sin and flip them and turned him into something beautiful. I'm going to ask you a question as we close tonight. Who was Solomon's mama? Bathsheba. Bathsheba. Now, if you don't know who Bathsheba is, Bathsheba is the lady who was married to Uriah. But while Uriah was out fighting in a battle and David, King David was staying back, he was up on the roof of his house and he looked down on the roof of another house and he saw Bathsheba taking a bath. And he lusted after her, he had her called for. And he slept with her, committed adultery, and she got pregnant. David now finds out she's pregnant, and now he has to cover up his sin. So he calls for Uriah to come back from the battle, and he says, hey, you know what, you've been out there battling and everything. Why don't you go home and sleep with your wife? There was no DNA testing back then. That way, when she gave birth, everybody think it was Uriah's baby and not David's. But Uriah was one of these guys. He said, look, I can't. All the men of Israel are out there sleeping on the ground. I can't go home and sleep with my wife. That wouldn't be right. And he stayed outside David's palace and slept on the ground. David says, well, maybe I'll get him drunk. If I get him drunk, he might stumble home, sleep with his wife, cover up my sin. So he gets him drunk. The guy doesn't do it. He sleeps outside. So David now gets mad, and he says, well, I'll have him put to death and he writes the orders to have him killed rolls them up seals them hands them to Uriah says take this to your commander he's carrying his own death sentence commander opens it sees what david says and at a certain time in the battle everybody backed up and let uriah get killed and then david takes bathsheba to be his wife when uriah dies and god comes to him through the prophet nathan and says what you did is a bad thing because you've done this, that child is going to die. David stops eating. He fasts, and he, he doesn't bathe, and he, he spends days crying out to God, begging God not to have the baby killed. But then they find out the baby, he finds out the baby died. He gets up, bathes himself, has a meal prepared. The Bible actually says, and you can double-check me, he went and lay with his wife Bathsheba, and she conceived and gave birth to a son named Solomon, and the Lord loved Solomon. Wait a minute. Isn't Solomon the one that God chose to build his temple? Oh, don't miss this. David repented of his sin. Psalm 51 is all about it. And sin, I've sinned against you and you only. God says, your sin is forgiven. I'm not going to take away the consequences for your sin. But because you've repented, I'm going to take the consequences and turn them into something beautiful. Folks, let me just tell you, I don't know what you're doing, what's going on. But if you're willing to come to God tonight and say, I've messed up. I need your forgiveness. I need your grace. He will take the mess and turn it into something beautiful. He's never done with us. He's never done with us. So I love you. I'll see you in two weeks. Thanks for coming.